everybody and welcome to the Jan February 10th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Senator Michael Bennett meeting with President Trump along with other lawmakers at the White House this week to discuss Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. Senator Bennett also met with Judge Gorsuch in Denver this weekend, but has yet to announce whether he'll support the nominee. Patty Calhoun from Westward. Uh, it, it seems that Gorsuch is making the right, uh, making the rounds in the right way, and the comments we've heard from so far. Uh, where do you think Bennett's going to fall on this one? Well, I think he should fall on the side that it's unlikely we could get anyone better than Gorsuch. It's great to have a Coloradan. You don't exactly think you're going to get a liberal jurist nominated by Trump. But I have to take heart from the fact that Gorsuch went on the record talking to senators <coughs> this week that said when Trump called the judge in Washington a so-called judge, that Gorsuch went ahead and said that was disheartening, that was demoralizing, that he is ready to stick up for the rule of law. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. What effect does Gorsuch calling that tweet demoralizing have on his chances? Should help among people who are concerned about the problem we've it's been growing worse for a century and continues to get worse, which is the centralization of the three power of the three branches of government being taken over by one, by the executive. And there's probably, I don't think there's anybody on the federal bench today who has written as frequently in opposition to that. Neil Gorsuch is a rule of law guy, and he's very much a separation of powers kind of guy. So if you're worried about the, the Trump autocracy, which you should be, as we should have been worried about the Obama autocracy before that and also their predecessors. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is absolutely the right man for the job. It's fine for Senator Bennett to, to take his time, but if he opposes Gorsuch, that would show him to be a worthless pawn of the national scene, and especially considering Gorsuch is from Colorado, uh, a poor representative of the interests and, and needs of the people of Colorado. Eric Sonnen, political analyst, do Democrats have enough firepower to fight this nomination? Not to win. They certainly have enough firepower to fight. I'm personally heartened. I hope there were pictures of the meeting between Bennett and Gorsuch somewhere in downtown Denver last weekend because that would show that they're not the same person. Because <laughs> to the naked eye, their politics, don't get me wrong, and philosophy is very different, but they are like cut from the same cloth. They both largely grew up around Washington, D.C. They're a similar age, similar educational background, similar stature in life. Yes, views are very different, but they are very much cut from the same cloth. Michael Bennett is definitely on the hot seat on this one because Democrats are so animated by all things Trump, by having lost an election that they never even countenanced the possibility they could lose by being so out in the wilderness. Democrats are demanding, and I mean the activist base of the Democratic Party is demanding an all-out fight on everything. Yet I think in his heart of hearts, Michael Bennett knows better and he's more strategic. The question is, will he come to that conclusion sooner and be a leader 
or will he come to that conclusion later and be dragged along? And I don't know the answer to that one. Joey Bunch, senior correspondent at ColoradoPolitics.com, joins us. Uh, where does Bennett go on this one? Well, he's in a tough spot. You know, and, and to, to write on what Dave said, I think there's a fine line between worthless pawn and smart politician. And I don't know, in Colorado, it's, it would be popular for him to pick Gorsuch. I agree with Patty. It's going to be hard to find somebody better that, that Trump would nominate. But at the same time, Gorsuch has been out there on, on um, religious liberty, on abortion. I, I just don't see how Michael Bennett holds together his base for the next election, albeit in five years, if he, uh, if he pals up with Gorsuch. And he's keeping this so close to his vest. You know, Ed Sealover from the Denver Business Journal saw Gorsuch and Bennett in Lodo at dinner time, and his office would confirm that, yes, they did meet in Denver at, lunch, at dinner time, but they, we, we can't confirm whether or not they had dinner. So, I mean, <laughs> that tells you that's Washington, and that's, uh, that's Denver, and, and Michael Bennett has to run in Denver. And a sign of Bennett's office responding to that question like that. That makes sense. On Thursday, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously ruled to not block a lower court ruling that has suspended the president's travel ban. The president called the ruling a political decision and responded on Twitter by saying he would see them in court, which responded with uh, which, which, which inspired a variety of reactions. Uh, Patty, we have both the decision and the reaction. Uh, give me your impressions of both. Well, it sounds like now Trump will first see his rewrite table because it looks like there will be a fresh executive order rather than fighting this one, which was flawed, up to the Supreme Court. I read the response and from the, and it was a great, I'm not a lawyer, but it was a great lesson in civics, just reading through the different things that, among other things, there was very little evidence um, presented by Trump's lawyer to talk about why it was a danger to the United States, classified, they said it was classified documents, so they couldn't release it. Well, plenty of judges have seen classified documents before. They didn't wind up ruling on the religious issues, so we didn't even get into the Muslim ban. It was due process for the people who actually were in this country legally, who had green cards, who went abroad and couldn't get back because of families, because of jobs. So good move by the ninth. We will obviously be fighting this issue, though, for a long time. David, we taped the program at 12.15 on Friday, so we, we just heard as we, as we sat down that the White House is going to issue different wording for a, a different executive order. From what we know so far, what, what are the legal ramifications? What do they need to change, or is it likely to face another legal battle? It may well face another legal battle. It may have a, a better chance. I'm just on the CU in court, I, it was, that was so nice of... President Trump because the judge is like, well, we work here. That, that's great. Thank you for, we're here every day. And on Joey's thing about the uh, Bennett's office wouldn't confirm they had dinner. If they, in fact, just had a couple pictures of sangria, all the better. Probably had a, a franker and more open, uh, open discussion. Um, last week, I predicted that the Washington lawsuit had a slender probability of success. I was obviously wrong on that. I think the difference is there's immigration law as it's existed and there's a very long record of the courts being unusually highly deferential to presidential decisions on that but what i didn't account for is those that tradition of deference is premised on the courts thinking well the president and his advisors were taking this pretty seriously and of course they have a broader understanding of the world than, than judges can. But 
the president threw away that presumption of competence that normally uh, previous presidents have enjoyed. Uh, as, in fact, he tweeted out something quoting a line uh, from a law professor who was critiquing some, some of the weaknesses in that decision, the, the Ninth Circuit's decision, but still said it was ultimately the, the correct decision. And it ended that professor wrote by saying this was rolled out with malevolent incompetence, which is, is accurate. Um, and as the court said, okay, you're now saying this doesn't apply to green card holders who have the, definitely the strongest legal case and have, have been through very extreme vetting. The court says, well, it's only the White House counsel that said it doesn't apply to green card holders anymore. The White House counsel is not a, the, the head of Homeland Security, Customs and Border, all, all those things. They don't report to the White House counsel. They report to the president. The president hasn't changed the executive order. He hasn't said it doesn't apply to green card holders. So the Ninth Circuit said, don't, don't tell us uh, that, that the green card holder has, has problem uh, has been solved. It should be rewritten. If it is rewritten through the normal process, uh, I think it's very likely they can come up with something that will withstand the inevitable challenges. Eric, it seemed to me that we uh, were seeing a pretty clear example of the president using the, ju the judiciary branch as a little bit of political shelter. Because if he does lose another, whether it's the new executive order and says it does lose in court, he can then, clearly he did in his tweets, say, if anything happens, it wasn't my fault, I did what I was supposed to do, the, if we're bombed tomorrow, it's the, the, some judge's fault. Uh, are we seeing a strategy that's likely to be employed throughout an administration? It's a great question, Dominic, and I think the answer to the question is yes, but I think it cuts both ways. I think the president is very much setting up the judiciary as the fall guy if something goes south here, as it inevitably will. We're not going to get through four years. Hopefully we get through four years without 9-11, but you're not getting through four years, probably not four months, without San Bernardino or Orlando or something uh, on, on that scale. I think, conversely, there are a whole lot of people looking to the judiciary as an institution of even heightened importance these days as the only real check on check and balance on this particular white house i love david's phrase of presumption of competence if this white house and this administration can regain that not just on this issue but on 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 many issues over the coming months and the coming years uh, a lot of this country would uh, breathe easier and would applaud there are two issues here, and I'll just real quickly hit them. One is the mishandling of the whole thing. You can argue the substance of that executive order. You can argue the substance of the Trump approach. But I don't think any good faith person can argue that this was well handled, that it was well formulated, that it was thoughtfully done. The second then gets to the substance of it, and not just the legal substance and what is what can prevail in court. But I keep hearing as a you know, a firstborn son of two German-Jewish immigrants to this country, I keep hearing echoes of 1939 and other stages in our history. And the history books have been very unkind to those particular chapters. I think the history books 20 and 50 years from now will be unkind to this chapter of a country closing its door or effectively closing its door or at least narrowing that door to refugee populations that, that, that need a place to go. Joey, you're one of our uh, guys in the Capitol. Uh, even though this is a national story, what's been the reaction locally? Uh, well, you know, Colorado immigration, this state turns on immigration. And there's been a lot of talk at the Capitol. It seems like there's a rally every day. I'm going to start a feature on Colorado politics 
com called Look Who's Mad Today because there are people out there on the, on the steps of the Capitol every day. And immigration, if Trump wants to lead all of America, he has to lead all of America. And, you know, with the Women's March, with the issues on immigration, um, the LGBT community. Now we're waiting to see what Jeff Sessions is going to do with the marijuana community. He seems to be riling up an awfully lot of people, an awful lot of people. And can, can this last for four years? Or does he want to get all the outrage over at once so anything that he does later seems small by comparison? I don't know, but every day it's a discussion at the Capitol. Scream therapy. I didn't even think about that. as mm -hmm. That's a creative way to look at that, Joey. I like mm -hmm. that. The confirmation of Secretary of Education nominee Betsy DeVos was marked by an historic tiebreaker from Vice President Mike Pence this week. At odds over the nomination were Colorado Senators Cory Gardner and Michael Bennett. Gardner noted that Congress will hold DeVos accountable for her commitment to public schools, while Bennett said DeVos lacks the experience and understanding to be an effective Secretary of Education. David, regardless of how tight the vote was, and this was the tightest nomination or confirmation vote in history, uh, does it matter now that she's confirmed? The ideal would be to bring people together in a bipartisan way and abolish the Department of Education. It is not a federal responsibility. Our constitutional system is it should be state and local. And one of the problems with the, all the, everybody getting mad every day one of the causes of that is the over-centralization of power in Washington, D.C., where, you know, the, the fate of your, your local public school depends on who's, who wins a presidential election. It should depend on who wins the school board elections and, and to a lesser extent, who, who, uh, the state government elections. It was, the department was created in, uh, by Jimmy Carter uh, for the purpose of gaining political favor with the teachers' unions, the freak out over Betsy DeVos is because it's not going to be the Department of Education will be run for the benefit of poor kids especially trapped in failing schools and giving them more opportunities rather than for the benefit of the teachers unions who are doing just fine because however badly the kids are getting educated they're still getting well paid and have in practice tenure that makes even incompetent teachers uh, very difficult to fire. Uh, Secretary DeVos went to a meeting at a public school in Washington, D.C. today with the chancellor of the D.C. public schools and with the Washington Teachers Union, which you would think is a good thing, and a mob showed up and blocked her from entering the schoolhouse door. You know, apparently they were watching all their old George Wallace videos and found that to be very inspiring. So they, they and she had to go back in her, uh, you know, Secret Service protective card, go around, find another entrance, and then some people in the mob still continue to chase her. As former Obama Education Secretary Arne Duncan said, whatever you think about her, really trying to keep her out of the public schools is not in anybody's interest. Eric, it was interesting to me that we saw two Republican senators flip on this one. And I don't know if it was a safe enough environment where they knew it's only going to be two, it's going to be 50-50, Pence is going to decide, so we're fine. But it did, I think, at least put a microscope on the fact that there's only a three-senator, uh, a very thin majority for Republicans in the U.S. Senate. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a slam dunk every time. What did you think about it coming down to a tie vote and the vice president having to break it? Yeah, it would have been much more interesting if there was a 
third Republican senator, and the third was always going to be harder to find mm -hmm. uh, than the first two. And all this social media traffic about Cory Gardner's wavering or Tom Tillis from North Carolina's wavering or everyone was supposedly wavering, I always took with a grain of salt. None of them were wavering. Those 50 votes um, were locked in there. I, I'm echoing, or my thought process is echoing a, a column I read, Ross Do That, uh, a columnist in the New York Times, who wrote a thoughtful piece and basically said, in some way, this particular battle was heartening in the sense that it was a standard issue political battle that we could have had with any Republican president. It almost harkens back to pre-Donald Trump days, if any of us can remember a time when Donald Trump wasn't on the political scene and dominating. Uh, the political scene. But here you had a nominee who is skewing to the choice side of the equation and against the teacher union side of the equation. And people pick up sides accordingly with Republicans endorsing that viewpoint with Democrats obviously being uh, completely enthralled and beholden in way, way too many cases and with way too much intensity uh, to teacher union interests. So I, I subscribe to the notion that this fight was not particularly a Donald Trump fight. I'm also curious that this is the nomination of all of Trump's nomination that became so galvanizing. I don't think at the time it was made you would have expected this would be the penultimate fight. Um, given that the Democrats made it the penultimate fight, came up one vote short, you wonder if they're going to be able to defeat any nominee. I mean, the list of who's still left to be confirmed is getting short. And if you have an education department who, for the next few years, tilts slightly on the side of choice, both public and private, and on the side of less regulation, I think the country can survive. It seemed back in November, December, it was such a target-rich environment, it was almost hard to figure out where they can focus the energy. I, I agree with you that it was uh, surprising to see this was where everything was focused. Uh, Joey, what has the effect of uh, Devo's confirmation had on uh, other educational reformers or education current supporters on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, I don't know about those people, but I know about teachers, and I know about teachers in Colorado, and I definitely know about teachers in Alabama. So I asked a couple of people that I went to high school with that are teachers uh, that have had careers in the education community and said, you know, what is it about Betsy DeVos that, that, that gets people worked up? And my friend Tom Highfield, who's been a teacher and a principal for 30 years, says that, you know, during the confirmation hearing, she showed no understanding of the challenges and the laws and the policies that affect public schools. And the choice for choice's sake, where that breaks is that those, that works in a lot of circumstances, but it doesn't work in all circumstances. And public schools don't have the luxury of saying, we're only going to teach certain circumstances. They, they educate every kid that shows up at the door. And they, she's alienated the education community by painting them as failures, I guess to use Donald Trump's word, losers. So she's walking in the door with that against her. And Democrats, politically speaking, Democrats understand that people are passionate about their schools and their children. So they're, they're more than happy to make Betsy DeVos the face of Donald Trump's administration. So I'm not surprised by the, by the rancor over this at all. My friend Laura, Ho Laura Hoke, um, she is a librarian, and she says that, frankly, she's terrified by Betsy DeVos. So people are taking this serious. It's, it's not just another administrator pushing paper. It's pushing policies that affect children and affect our lives. Patty, is this the end of our conversation about this controversial cabinet pick? Oh, I'm guessing no. I mean, to follow Joey, there's a real reason, there's a very obvious reason why she was the one who came closest so far. 
although it's tough competition for who performed worse at the hearings, she was beyond doubt. She came across completely incompetent, had no idea what was going on, the vastness of what she's done. In Michigan, she's gained some kudos for some of her work with choice, but she looked like she flunked kindergarten at those hearings. So it's not a surprise that people were fighting. And plus, these are issues that parents care about. The parents flooding the phone lines at Congress. I mean, the parents sending pizzas because they couldn't get through with little notes inside the pizzas <laughs> to their legislators, don't vote for her. That's all great. It's bad when they're protesting and not letting her get into a school. But to let their elected officials know they don't approve of this choice, that's great. Let's get a quick take on this last one. In a 3-2 to two vote this week, the bill to dismantle the Colorado Health Exchange passed the Senate Finance Committee. If ultimately approved, Senate Bill 3 would redirect health care consumers to a federally run option. The bill's supporters argue the Affordable Care Act hasn't lowered Colorado's health care costs, while opponents want to give the program more time to work through, work through its kinks. Uh, Eric, your quick take on this. Is this purely ceremonial because of the split legislature? Yeah, I think it is. Two quick takes. One is it's likely not to go through the House. Uh, it's hard to imagine that it does go through the House. Second is these issues are ultimately going to be decided in Washington until Washington feel, figures out what repeal and replace actually means. And as critical as I am, by the way, Dominic, of Donald Trump on issue after issue after issue, I'll give him a little credit that he has slowed down the express train on repeal and replace to try to figure out what to do here as opposed to rushing it like you did the executive order we talked about earlier. But Colorado is going to have to respond to Washington, not the other way around. Joey, is this dead on arrival at the House? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is all political theater, and it's all aimed at 2018. You know, isn't it a bit much? We're going to throw 175,000 people out of insurance, which is fine. I mean, the health exchange hasn't worked great in Colorado, and it has been expensive. But... We're going to throw those people onto the insurance market, and then in all likelihood next year they're going to have to go back into the insurance market again when Obamacare goes away. So 2018, this will matter then, but it doesn't matter right now. Patty, what do you think? Well, your question said it all. The federally run option, what federally run option? So there, you cannot throw these people into limbo again for a year, so you're going to have to wait to see what happens with the feds. David, wrap it up for us throwing people out of the Hickenlooper version of Obamacare into Obamacare Classic um, is, is not so great uh, either way. Neither one is sustainable. Uh, they're they're going to, if, if nothing were done, they're going to collapse on their own anyway. They need to be replaced with something that can work over the long term. Um, and then the direction is something that expands patient choice rather than constricting it. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. Patty, as always, starts off. We are going to have so many for the next four years, but maybe eight years. But let me go with Doug Lamborn, the representative who thinks it's a great idea to defund public radio and public television. Mm -hmm. um, I would certainly say if you enjoy the options you have with the media that is not losers, um, let Doug Lamborn know it's not a good idea. I wholeheartedly concur. It comes down to 0.01% of the national budget. David. A lot of media coverage about traffic congestion in Denver, which is an important thing to cover, but failure to discuss the fact that the mayor's office in Denver is deliberately promoting congestion uh, as part of their theory that the more congested we can make the area around downtown, uh, the more we can coerce people into bicycling or taking a gondola or whatever. 
<laughs> Eric. No, it's been too long since we've talked about the administration up at CU Boulder, so let me go there. Assistant football coach mm -hmm. Joe Tumpkin charged with five felony counts, including, and in addition to some misdemeanor counts, the athletic director, the chancellor, they all knew about this before CU played in the bowl game, but they still allowed him to coach in that bowl game before they made him resign uh, under pressure. Uh, a little speedier action and a little bit better sense of priorities might have been in order. Mm -hmm. Joey. The weekend after uh, Trump announced his Muslim travel restrictions, there were, there were protests out at the airport. And this week there was a lawsuit filed in federal court against Denver police for telling people that they needed a permit to protest, though nobody was arrested. And further, the lawsuit went on to name the officer that went and told these two activists that they couldn't hold signs, but no one was arrested. So, you know, Denver police, they take, a, they take a lot of black eyes, and that some of them are probably deserved, but not this one. Sue the people who made the policy, not the people who are, whose job it is to carry out the policy. Say something nice about somebody. Patty? I'm going to say something nice about the Denver County Fair, which has been a great institution since it started here in 2011. It's continuing, but now it's being taken over by the National Western Stock Show. David? The House State Affairs Committee on... Uh, Wednesday held a hearings on, on three gun bills, and I knew it was going to be like King Lear, where the dialogue would be interesting, but I wouldn't like the ending. But taking that into account, they worked well, very late into the night to let everybody testify, and that wasn't something they just do that night. All the committees in the legislature do lots of late nights so that any person who wants to come down and, and be heard has an opportunity to do that. And that's one of the ways the Colorado legislature is really much better than California or Congress is you can, you can still have your voice heard. And I think that's one of the reasons Colorado's political dialogue is more civil uh, than in some other places. Eric. Very quick twofer, but they're related. First, uh, Colorado lost uh, a distinguished statesman this uh, week, uh, former House Speaker John Furr, who was the speaker back in the 70s, when politics was of a different brand and there was a civility to it that is lacking now. On that score, if viewers haven't seen a seven-minute video of Marco Rubio's floor speech a few nights ago in the U.S. Senate, you should go check that out online. Republicans are brandishing this as some kind of takedown during the whole Elizabeth Warren nonsense. It wasn't that. Republicans are wrong on that. Democrat, the liberal media is ignoring it. That's equally wrong. It was a great floor speech in terms of what civil discourse needs to be on the floor of the Senate and in the country writ large. Joey. Representative Joe Salazar, I was out at the airport um, the Saturday night after the travel ban. And there was a large group out of there, but they weren't, you know, they weren't uh, intimidating or anything. It was more, in fact, festive than in anything. But Denver police gathered around. Airport security gathered around. They were ready to start dragging people out of there. Joe Salazar stepped up, and I moved over that way because Joe Salazar is a tough guy. I thought, and this is the kind of thing that makes his blood boil. I thought... This is going to this is going to be interesting. But Joe handled it great. He uh, he spoke with the officer that was in charge. He was speaking on the phone with the police chief. He was speaking on the phone with the mayor's office. Nobody went to jail that night. The city didn't get a black eye. And only because I was standing ten feet away, I know that Joe Salazar is the reason that happened. 
That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to tune in for a special night of programming on Wednesday night when we feature the sum of our to sum total of our memory, an award-winning documentary about Alzheimer's disease and caregiving. We're going to follow that up with a live studio discussion at 8 o'clock with many special guests and then rerun the whole thing from 9 to 11. So it's going to be a great night, Wednesday, February 15th, from 7 to 9 p.m. and again 9 to 11. As always, be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and on Google Play and Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.